I never worked for Russia. And you know that answer better than anybody. I never worked for Russia. Not only did I never work for Russia, I think it's a disgrace that you even asked that question. As we head into a new work week, the 24-day partial government shutdown drags on. It is now the longest in U.S. history. Major news tonight, President Trump railing against headlines involving the Russia investigation and private talks with Vladimir Putin. Hillary Clinton is having a told-you-so moment, tweeting, quote, like I said, a puppet. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So the president, while he was president, has been under formal FBI counterintelligence investigation, and explicitly, he's been under suspicion of working for the Kremlin against the interests of the United States while he has been in the Oval Office. Don't get me wrong. Donald Trump has been under investigation for much longer than this counterintelligence investigation, which started in May of 2017. He's been under investigation by journalists and concerned citizens, and really anyone who's been paying attention to that exact crime. Trump, working for the Kremlin against the interests of the United States. Twitter is filled with journalists and citizens who've been tirelessly connecting dots well before the election. And then there are reporters and some investigators even who've known Trump is dirty, mobbed up, and beholden to the former Soviet states since the 1980s at least. Beholden to, by the way, means simply bribed and blackmailed. But the reporting about the long-running counterintelligence investigation in The New York Times, the fact that the FBI is looking for evidence in short of Trump's witting or unwitting collaboration in attacks on our country is still news. It's as if you suspect that your husband has a mistress and another family somewhere, you know, as one does, and all the signs and receipts and credit card bills and his sketchy behavior point to that. Even your friends agree that he has another family and has been cheating. But now, It's on a billboard in Times Square, and the FBI suspects it, too. It makes the whole experience of being with this lying, cheating husband or president something else. My guest today knows something about lying, cheating types who have a lot of money and power. He's Bill Browder, Vladimir Putin's number one nemesis. Bill is known to listeners of Trumpcast as a tireless crusader for criminal justice around the world and the conscience of the Magnitsky Act, which puts financial sanctions and travel bans on anyone associated with human rights abuses. He has all the best enemies, Natalia Veselnitskaya, the lawyer, well, let's call her Jane of all Kremlin trades. She's kind of a fixer for the oligarchs who went to the Trump Tower meeting pitching her scheme to get Browder to Kushner, Manafort, and Don Jr., if it's what you say. I love it. He's an enemy of the oligarchs who have blood on their hands and who are thus terrified that Browder's going to take their diamonds and furs. And Putin, he's Putin's enemy, whose money is frozen every time a Russian oligarch's money is frozen under the Magnitsky Act as he takes 50% of their dough. And Putin has vowed to sideline and even hurt Bill Browder. And finally, Browder is an enemy of Donald Trump, who in Helsinki agreed with Putin's great idea to send Browder, who's not even an American citizen his way, and subject him to the psycho non-justice of Putin's goons. I've never asked Bill how afraid he is of all this, and I've never asked him point blank about whether he thinks Trump is a Russian asset. And I've never fully discussed with him how the Kremlin seems to compromise so many and gets 
Americans in its pocket. But that's going to change today. I'll be back with Bill Browder in just a minute. But first, I want to give a shout out to any listeners who'll be in and around Southern California in early February, because we're coming at you with Trumpcast Live Thursday, February 7th at the Ace Hotel in downtown L.A. You'll see me, our co-host Leon Krause and former Trumpcast host turned New York Times opiner Jamel Bowie. Slate Plus members get a 30% discount. So go to Slate dot com slash live for tickets. They're moving fast, so don't wait. Slate.com slash live. And now the tweets. I just watched a fake reporter from the Amazon Washington Post say the White House is quote chaotic. There does not seem to be a strategy for this shutdown. There is no plan. Close quote. The fakes always like Talking chaos, there is none. In fact, there's almost nobody in the White House but me, and I do have a plan on the shutdown. But to understand that plan, you would have to understand the fact that I won the election, and I promised safety and security for the American people. Part of that response was a wall at the southern border. Elections have consequences. So sorry to hear the news about Jeff Bozo being taken down by a competitor whose reporting, I understand, is far more accurate than the reporting in his lobbyist newspaper, the Amazon Washington Post. Hopefully, the paper will soon be placed in better and more responsible Starting the long overdue pullout from Syria while hitting the little remaining ISIS territorial caliphate hard and from many directions. will attack again from existing nearby base if it reforms, will devastate Turkey economically if they hit the Kurds. Create 20 mile safe zone. I wish I could share with everyone the beauty and majesty of being in the White House and looking outside at the snow-filled lawns and rose garden really is something. Special country, special place. Joining me in the studio in New York is Bill Browder. Thanks for being here, Bill. Great to be here. It's great to have you back in the studio. You're almost guest one of Trumpcast. <laughs> Practically before the Republican National Convention in 2016, I think you came on to lay some of the groundwork for the story that has since evolved and lately come to some kind of climactic moment in the compromise of the American president by the Russian president. I would have never expected that my story and the story of Sergei Magnitsky and the story of the Magnitsky Act would play such a central role in Putin's life and apparently inspiring Putin to play such a central role in the lives of all Americans through his interference in the U.S. political process. You're probably tired of telling your story, but maybe you can tell us in 200 words how you came to this story. I know that you weren't ever interested in being a criminal justice crusader. That wasn't where you started. And your life took a big turn. Maybe more than 200 words, but not much more. I started out as a hedge fund manager in Russia. I went out there because of a strange family background. My grandfather was the head of the American Communist Party 
And to rebel against that, I became a capitalist. The Berlin Wall came down and I ended up becoming an investor in Russia. I was an investor in Russia running the largest investment fund in Russia called the Hermitage Fund. And I discovered massive corruption that was being orchestrated by oligarchs and members of the Putin regime. And so I started to expose the corruption. And as you can imagine, those people who were benefiting from it didn't take too kindly. Mm -hmm. I was expelled from the country in 2005. My offices were raided. They seized all of our documents. And then they used those documents to perpetrate a massive $230 million tax rebate fraud. It wasn't my money they stole, but $230 million of taxes that I paid to the Russian government. And I had a young lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky who uncovered the fraud. He exposed it. He testified against the officials involved. And he was subsequently arrested by some of the same people he exposed. He was put in pretrial detention tortured for 358 days, and then brutally murdered on the night of November 16th, 2009, at the age of 37. And since then, I've put aside all of my business activities, and as you said, I've become a criminal justice crusader, and with one specific goal, which is to go after the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky and make them face justice. I never anticipated that this would have happened, but we ended up getting a law passed. I should say that the Russians circled the wagons and made sure that there was nobody who paid any consequences in Russia. Mm -hmm. And so I came to America and I told the story to Senators Benjamin Cardin, a Democrat from Maryland, and John McCain, a Republican from Arizona. And they came up with something called the Magnitsky Act. And the Magnitsky Act freezes the assets and bans the visas of the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky and the people who do similar types of crimes in Russia. Mm -hmm. And we had no idea, but this hit the Achilles heel of Vladimir Putin. He commits human rights abuses in Russia in order to steal money, mm -hmm. and he keeps that money offshore. And so as a result, we were basically targeting Vladimir Putin personally. And since the law was passed, um, he's done everything in his power to try to repeal it, to try to stop it from being passed in other countries. And that led here to the American political process, where in 2016, he sent a lawyer, Natalia Veselnitskaya, to Trump Tower mm -hmm. with one specific request of Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, Paul Manafort, which is that if Donald Trump became elected, that he would repeal the Magnitsky Act. Mm -hmm. As a result of that meeting, which was then exposed, there was all sorts of people making up stories and lying about what happened in that meeting and became part of the Mueller investigation. And Natalia Veselnitskaya has just recently got herself in a lot of trouble by lying to federal prosecutors. You've always had no doubt that Ms. Veselnitskaya Esquire would find her way, I mean, that justice would prevail and recognize her as not just a rank-and-file lawyer, but a real agent of the Kremlin. There's no doubt. She basically effectively drafts documents for the Kremlin and for the general prosecutor of Russia that they then send out on official letterhead to the United States. And Natalia Veselnitskaya was indicted last week for obstruction of justice by the U.S. Department of Justice for basically lying about documents submitted in the court case that she was working on here in the United States. But it's not the only place where she's gotten up to no good. Ah. Most people don't know this, and this is quite interesting, is that her clients, the one who were on trial here for money laundering in the United States, are also being investigated for money laundering in Switzerland. Hmm. Uh, the Swiss authorities have frozen $8 million that belong to Natalia Veselnitskaya's Russian oligarch client. Name him. This is His name is Denis Kotsiv. He's the owner of a Cyprus company called Prevazon. Mm -hmm. And Prevazon and his father is a man named Pyotr Kotsiv. 
Pyotr Katsiv is a senior Russian government official. He was the vice governor of the Moscow region until recently, and now he's the vice president of Russian Railways, which is one of the most important Russian state-owned companies in a big sieve of takes out all the money from Russia, second most important Russian company after Gazprom. Mm -hmm. So in Switzerland, their money has been frozen. They've been under criminal investigation, Mm -hmm. and it was discovered about a year ago that a senior member of the Swiss federal police had been colluding in some way with Natalia Veselnitskaya. He mm-hmm. was fired. He's under investigation for, for all sorts of terrible crimes. And so she's out there poking away at every different system that has an interest in money laundering about Russia, that has an interest in sanctions about Russia. And she's a no-holds-bar person who basically will do just anything and thinks that she can get away with it. And she hasn't got away with it here in the United States, and she hasn't gotten away with it in Switzerland. As you know, in your testimony before the Senate Judiciary, that when you first came to my attention, I think I've maybe said this in print many, many times, but you just spelled out with such clarity the role of Americans, you call them enablers, who take the legitimate world, America, and use it in a way to launder the illegitimate world, Russia, for example. That's a process that I didn't understand until you spelled it out to me. Natalia Veselnitskaya, who meets with Paul Manafort, that's in that particular gray area. That's an American enabler, the lobbyist and political operative Paul Manafort, who skirts right up to the line of being an agent of the Kremlin himself, or an agent at least of the oligarchs that are in proximity to the Kremlin. And then Natalia Vetselnitskaya, who passes as a lawyer. Tell me about that. So the Russians don't want to keep their dirty, stolen money in Russia because as easy as they could steal it, it could be stolen from them. Yes. And so what they like is to have the safety and security and property rights that we have in the West. Mm-hmm. And so what the Russians do is after they've killed people and imprisoned them and taken them hostage and extorted them and they gotten all this money, they then bring the money to the United States. They bring it to the UK. They bring it to Switzerland and France where they have property rights. And once they bring it to these countries, they have to have a bunch of Westerners sort of looking after their money, assisting them in making sure their money is safe in the West, mm-hmm. setting up bank accounts, laundering the money, mm-hmm. promoting them as good people. And, and also providing security, which has been interesting to see Black Cube and K2, which is Giuliani's organization, do all kinds of things, control their image in the press, endear them to hoteliers, like get them places in restaurants so that they look good. So their kids start socializing with Americans and everyone says, well, we went to school together and these guys are okay. It's a total infiltration exercise to basically take criminals and try to whitewash them both reputationally, legally, and financially so they legitimize their sort of illegitimate existence. And there's a whole class of people. You've named some of the names. There's other names. There's an extraordinary story. After Magnitsky was murdered, we wanted to figure out who got the money that he was killed over. And we hired a famous old world U.S. prosecutor named John Moscow. He had been formerly at the New York DA's office. And you can't make up the name John Moscow. <laughs> so John Moscow, he's, he worked in Morgenthau's office in the famous times of the New York DA. Yeah. Then he, I guess, decided to go into private practice. He went to a firm called Baker and Hostetler, uh-huh. a very fancy New York law firm. He goes to work there. We hire him because he's supposed to be the best in the business of tracking down money launderers. Mm-hmm. He helps us track down the money launderers. And then one day he disappears. And the next thing we see is that after we've found the money that belonged to Preverzone and we walked it into the U.S. authorities, to the people he introduced us to, mm-hmm. He then becomes the defense lawyers for the people who laundered the money. 
Unbelievable. But the story gets even better. And so then we fight with him for three years to try to disqualify him. Mm -hmm. The culmination of the fight to disqualify this enabler, John Moscow, was on June 9th, 2016, at the Second Circuit Appeals Court in New York Uh to sit and give him moral support. But none other than Natalia Veselnitskaya, (laughs) who is the lawyer who hired John Moscow. Yes. And and Natalia Veselnitskaya sits in the New York courtroom in the morning of June 9th, 2016. And then in the afternoon, after John Moscow loses and gets disqualified, she goes over to Trump Tower. Well, that's an incredible week. We've talked about this in the life of one Natalia Veselnitskaya. She meets with Glenn Simpson somewhere in the middle. For people who have trouble telling apart what's relevant about the Prevazon case and then the meeting in Trump Tower, you are the person that connects those two events. I mean, I noticed in the New York Times, it says Natalia Veselnitskaya of the Trump Tower meeting is indicted. That was the headline last week. But she's not just of the Trump Tower meeting. She's of the total animus for Bill Browder that controlled her exciting June week in New York in the summer of 2016. I took a little bit of offense last week when everybody said she was indicted on an unrelated issue. Ah, yes, that's a she, very good She was point. indicted on an absolutely related issue. Yes. So Natalia Veselnitskaya goes to Trump Tower. She's indicted lying to the U.S. Department of Justice in creating a document which refuses to answer the Department of Justice's questions from the Russians mm-hmm. and instead accuses me of every crime under the sun. Mm-hmm. And then she goes to the Trump Tower meeting and tells them, Bill Browder is a criminal. If you guys become the government, have him arrested Mm -hmm. and have the Magnitsky Act repealed. It's all part and parcel of the same project. And so it wasn't a separate matter. It was just one different strand of the same matter, which is Natalia Veselnitskaya's effective assignment on behalf of Vladimir Putin to come after me and come after the Magnitsky Act. I want to go back because you've written Red Notice, which I recommend to all the listeners about your experience in Russia and with Sergei Magnitsky and after that. One of the things that I've been trying to sort out on Trumpcast is how so many people break bad, as it were, start out a persuasive military general like Mike Flynn or a senator with conscience like Lindsey Graham, and then all of a sudden start doing weird things and behaving weirdly. I mean, Dana Rohrabacher was born an American, and I doubt that he grew up wanting to be an agent of the Kremlin. He grew up during the Cold War. Michael Cohen, the same thing. What is it like when you decided to go to Russia? What is it like when you get there and you're an American, you're you're a young man rebelling against your grandfather, Earl Browder, a great communist, and you decide you're going to, like friends of mine, wildcat around and make some money in Russia where there were all these opportunities. You decided you were going to get into finance there. Is it fun? Is it exciting? How do you either resist it or give into it or take part in it without becoming of it? I moved to Russia in 1996. Okay. I started traveling there in 1992. And it was basically there was this totalitarian regime which collapsed. And in the ashes of the totalitarian regime, they then said, we're declaring capitalism. Mm -hmm. And the beautiful thing about that is that nobody had any more experience than anyone else with capitalism in Russia because it was all starting on day zero. And so I showed up as a 25-year-old and it was like the Wild West during the gold rush. It was all there. Nobody was in charge of anything. It was total chaos. I was in the world of finance and and in the world of finance, they were privatizing companies at a 99.7% discount to the price of the same companies in the West. Mm -hmm. And so you didn't have to be a financial genius to say, if I could buy shares of those companies at a 99.7% discount, and for some reason they don't take them away from us, Mm -hmm. 
then maybe one day it goes to a 99% discount. And what were these companies? Because we know that Exxon got in there, but mostly it's Russian companies that have been state-owned companies. Every single thing in the economy of Russia was privatized. And the main things that they had of value were oil and gas companies, metals companies, and then they had telephone companies, electricity companies, Mm -hmm. every company that you might expect in an economy. None of these companies were well run. Most Mm -hmm. of them were decrepit beyond belief. But if you looked at the price of British Telecom versus Ross Telecom, Ross Telecom was at a 99.7% discount. And so, and they were terribly badly run and everything was wrong with them and there was no property rights and there was gangsters and bad guys and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, but the idea was if you could just buy these things, hold them, and they didn't take them away from you, and that if if for some reason Russia went from horrible, which is what it was at that point, to very bad, you could make a lot of money. And you didn't have to deal with anybody, really. In my case, you just bought the shares and, and hoped for the best. The really bad guys at the time weren't the guys with gold teeth and leather jackets. They were the oligarchs. The oligarchs, they didn't exist in the Soviet days. What happened was that this group of people, basically the moment that the Russia sort of became chaos, swooped in, and there was 22 of them, and they basically stole enough at the very, very beginning to have enough money to start bribing people. I see. And using that money, they then, they then rigged auctions and did all sorts of stuff. And these 22 individuals ended up controlling 40% of the country, while everybody else was dying at the age of 57 because they had no health care <laughs> and so on and so forth. So the really disgusting part of the whole thing, and the thing that, that infuriated me every day when I was in Russia, mm-hmm. were these oligarchs, because they were then buying these yachts and villas and taking all this money away mm-hmm. from the Russians. And the irony, and this is where people people often criticize me for this, but the irony was that when Vladimir Putin first came to power, mm-hmm. his big pitch to everybody was that he was going to normalize Russia and take away the power from the oligarchs. And I cheered and everybody else cheered mm-hmm. saying, God, I, I hope that someone stops this because this is the most disgusting, unfair thing I've ever seen. And professors had to become taxi drivers. Mm-hmm. Art museums were selling the paintings off the walls to keep them heated during the winter. And this was all the fault of the oligarchs. And so Vladimir Putin comes in. And he says, I'm going to take away the power from the oligarchs. And then he started cracking down on the oligarchs. Mm-hmm. And I said, yay. Yeah. And the first oligarch he cracked down on was Michael Hordakovsky, the owner of Yukos, who yes. was the richest oligarch. And I said, great, one down, 21 to go. Mm-hmm. And then, and this is where the story gets really perverse, the next oligarch is a guy named Roman Abramovich. Mm-hmm. Roman Abramovich, as many people will know, is the owner of the Chelsea football team or, or soccer team, as we say here. Yeah. He had an oil company called Sibneft. Mm-hmm. So you had Hordakovsky had an oil company called Yukos. Mm-hmm. They imprisoned Hordakovsky. They take away his oil company. And then Abramovich has an oil company called Sibneft. And instead of taking it away from him, they pay him $13 billion for his oil company. Mm. And then they make him the governor of the Chukotka region. And so I, at that point, it said, wait a second. Well, so they're not going after the oligarchs. Mm-hmm. They seem to be punishing one who is challenging Putin and rewarding one who is friends with Putin. Mm-hmm. And then it became clear that Putin's goal was not to get rid of the oligarchs. Mm-hmm. Putin's goal was to become the biggest oligarch himself. And how did he get the money for that gas company? Because that's where I think your work and Sergei Magnitsky's work comes in. I mean, the Kremlin in Soviet days and Yeltsin days and Gorbachev days had not amassed anything like the fortune that Putin now personally has. But he did have tax money and that tax money that was meant to buy indoor plumbing for Russians was in fact used to personally enrich Putin. So Putin is basically like the chief capo. Yeah. He's the top boss. Every scam in Russia, he gets a piece of. I would estimate him to be worth $200 billion. Incidentally, he now might surpass Jeff Bezos, depending on how yeah, Bezos well, does in his divorce. Yeah, you know, on the 50-50 thing, he's, he's definitely now 
not top dog for sure. Yeah, the 50-50 thing. So explain that. Well, there's two 50-50 things. One okay. is Jeff Bezos and oh, his yes. wife. <laughs> so, yes, exactly. But, but the other 50-50 thing, and the one that's so relevant to Putin, is that after he arrested Hordakovsky, all the other oligarchs came to him and said, Vladimir, what do we have to do to make sure we don't get arrested? And Putin said, it's real straightforward, 50%. Mm-hmm. And if any oligarch said, I don't want to do that, then he said, okay, then I'll just arrest you and take 100%. And so it's a much better deal to do the 50%. Yeah. And so as a result, every oligarch had to hand over 50% of their money to Vladimir Putin. And what this means is two things. One, as I said, he's the richest man in the world. Two, when you see an oligarch investing somewhere, having money somewhere, some of that's Putin's money. In April of this year, a number of oligarchs were sanctioned. Oleg Deripaska, Viktor Vexelberg, and others. Just for listeners, Deripaska was who I think of as Manafort's bookie. Manafort owed him a ton of money and then came to the campaign as campaign manager for free to Trump on the grounds that he might use it to get whole become a conduit, it looks like, to the Russian government and thereby be able to get more bribes. So that's the first one. And the second one, Victor Vexelberg, is, I think, known to listeners as someone who used Michael Cohen's essential consultants to get close to Donald Trump or in an effort to get close to Donald Trump. He's also known, I think, as the good oligarch, right, because he had ties to Harvard and so forth and looked sort of clean. Well, just today, MIT severed all relations with Victor Vexelberg, a big article on, on Radio Free Europe. <laughs> Another so, too little too late, um, like for exactly, the annals they, of too little too late. Right. They were all smooching up to him for years, yeah. asking him for money and so on. But in any case, coming back to this, when those oligarchs were sanctioned for effectively supporting Putin in influencing or trying to disrupt the American political process, that was like a neutron bomb going off over Moscow because that affected Putin's personal money. Ah. Most people didn't notice this. You only notice what Putin does. People don't notice what he doesn't do. Yeah. But after those seven oligarchs were sanctioned, normally they would have sanctioned seven Americans or something like that. Putin just kept his mouth shut. Yeah, the- why was that? Because Deripaska, you know, went to the ATM one morning and his aluminum company was bankrupt. I still don't understand how Russians just quite literally go from billionaires to paupers overnight. But in any case, I guess that's the work of sanctions. Well, sanctions are incredibly effective. Nobody can do any business with somebody who's on the U.S. sanctions list. But Putin didn't say anything because if he had said something, if he said, we're going to go after, you know, Exxon and Citibank and so on and so forth, then in theory, the Americans could sanction another seven oligarchs. Mm. And Putin understood that he has no response to this. And this Mm -hmm. affects him very personally. And so instead of going doing all this public stuff, they went into this massive stealth campaign to lift the sanctions. And the stealth campaign kind of worked because a couple of days ago, the Treasury announced that they were going to loosen sanctions mm-hmm. on Oleg Deripaska. They tried to sort of put a fig leaf on it to say that, look, he's agreed to reduce his ownership in his company, Rusal, yeah. Russian aluminum, from 70% to 45%. And that seems like he's now not going to control the company and therefore we can lift the sanctions <sighs> on the company. Anyone who spent like more than like a minute on Wall Street will understand that 45% is control of a company. That Mm. doesn't make you not control the company. And so right now there's huge uproar in Washington as to the lifting of these sanctions. It's still possible because the Magnitsky Act has gone global. It's still possible that he could be sanctioned elsewhere, right? Maybe a French travel ban or something could have some effect on them, even if the U.S. government is temporarily disabled. So the strategy we've had is to make sure that the Magnitsky Act doesn't just exist in the United States, but exists in all sort of reasonable countries where bad guys would want to keep their money and travel to. And so we've got the Magnitsky Act passed in Canada. We've got it passed in the UK, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. Interestingly, it was recently passed in Jersey and Gibraltar, which sounds very obscure that most people haven't even heard of 
Jersey and Gibraltar. They're both islands where offshore jurisdictions where a lot of bad guys keep their money. And so in a certain way, Jersey is more significant than almost anywhere because there's hundreds of billions of dollars of offshore money in Jersey, which could potentially be seized. But coming back to your point, most of all, they like to travel to Mm Saint-Tropez, Cap Ferran, France. Cap Antibes and other... other uh, if it's a place people went in Fitzgerald's times, it's a place the oligarchs seem to want to go. They seem cartoonish, but just like Donald Trump, they're incredibly dangerous. And these people absolutely very predictably go to the places that seem most fancy to them. And we are now, and this is quite interesting, at the point of getting an EU Magnitsky Act. The, mm. uh, the Dutch government proposed it in December and it was agreed in principle. And interestingly, right after that happened... The Russian government accused me of murdering Sergei Magnitsky. Yourself. They said, I murdered my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, even though they murdered him in jail and I was thousands of miles away trying to fight to get him released. And they also accused me of serial killing because they accused me of murdering a whole bunch of other Russians who were involved Mm. in one way or another in this case. And so Putin is really rattled by this whole thing. And, yeah. and whatever he's whatever he tried to do in America is having some impact. But at the same time, you know, we're rolling this thing out across the world and we're throwing spokes in their wheels everywhere we can. And it's working and it's causing them great upset. It's such an elegant piece of legislation. I mean, I know you've given credit in the past. Maybe we can give credit here to the late Senator John McCain's staff who were involved in drafting it. I remember this during the sanctions on the savings and loan crowd made off. Just thinking, why we love the spectacle in America of them going to jail. Fair enough. And you can think about this with Donald Trump. But there's nothing like freezing assets and travel banning them that really counts, that really seems to hurt the organizations. And you all managed to craft legislation that would let indictments of some of these figures actually feel it. I don't think that's been done before. It's never been done before. And, and what we figured out is that if you want to do a criminal prosecution, it takes years and years and thousands of hours and there's defense lawyers and so on and so forth. But with almost no effort other than a bit of evidence, a government can review the evidence, determine that someone has done something terrible and then put them on a sanctions list. And for a person who where money is more valuable than human life and they prove that by killing people to get money, yes. to take away their money is an extraordinarily effective tool at causing them upset, grief, and punishment. And it works, and it works well. And the Magnitsky Act, which has now been not just, it doesn't just apply to Russians anymore, it Mm -hmm. applies to bad guys from all over the world, Mm -hmm. is busy taking down bad guys everywhere. Yeah. In Nicaragua, in Burma, in China, in Saudi Arabia. And it's now become effectively the major international justice tool for going after bad guys. It is astonishing also that Figures in Congress were able to craft financial legislation and take advantage of the globalization of the banks and just not something that you'd think would come from government. That, I think, is just especially intelligent. I mean, you don't think John McCain and think financial regulations like this was not SEC regulations. But let me tell you something that, 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 you know, everybody is very partisan all over the world. This was the most bipartisan thing ever been done. The Republicans and the Democrats are fully locked in arms on Mm -hmm. this thing. And interestingly, while Trump is all busy, you know, shouting at some porn stars and all this kind Mm -hmm. of stuff, the apparatus of the U.S. government is implementing sanctions against bad guys in all countries all over the world. There are people in the Treasury Department, in the State Department Mm -hmm. that have been there for 20 years through every different administration that are implementing this law. That's good to know because the assumption is that the State Department is essentially toothless now. No, no. If you look at the sanctions list, it's being rolled out. Now, there's one important caveat, which is every year in December, the Russian Magnitsky list is updated with new names. It's been going on since 2012 when the law was passed. Mm -hmm. In 2018, in December, there was no Magnitsky list. 
There was no Magnitsky list, and we were told there would be a Magnitsky list. It was just going to be a couple weeks late. And that had happened during the Obama administration as well. But I then discovered that the people who were responsible for rolling out the Magnitsky sanctions are all on furlough Mm. because the government has been shut down. And so one of the strange, unexpected consequences of the government shutdown is no Magnitsky sanctions until it comes back up again. Okay, unexpected. Now, I think you probably know what I'm going to ask because we have to move to how compromised do you think our government is? Is there any possibility, given how important the Magnitsky Act is to Putin and co., that this is not an unintended consequence for the authors of the shutdown, namely President Trump? I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I, I focus on facts. I'm not happy with Donald Trump offering to hand me over to the Russians at the Helsinki summit. And yes. There's a lot of things that he said about Vladimir Putin that I'm not unhappy with, but I don't want to start speculating about, you know, conspiracies. I, I'll, I'll focus on the facts, mm-hmm. but let's see what happens when the government reopens and the government will reopen. It mm-hmm. has to. And when it does, if they, if they don't sanction those Russians, then that's a very clear sign that there's something amiss. I know you're not a conspiracy theorist and you've been very cautious on this show and in other conversations to really talk about Trump. But we now know that this FBI investigation has been going on since around May of 2017, this investigation of the president. And there's quite a bit of evidence based on the behavior of some people in Congress, not just Rohrabacher, who McCarthy and everyone else says is paid by Putin, but Lindsey Graham, even possibly Mitch McConnell, some involved with the, quote, conservative movement because of their proximity to the NRA and its proximity to the indicted Russian spy Maria Butina. Can you tell us if you think that the Oval Office is compromised or let's say if it is compromised, what should we be doing about it? Let's go through where there's evidence of compromise. Good. The NRA was taking money from the Russians, and the NRA was giving money to the Trump administration. And there's a woman who was caught, indicted, and mm-hmm. pled guilty to that, mm-hmm. and who will now be cooperating with the special prosecutor. Yeah. There's compromise. Okay. okay. Mike Flynn was having all sorts of discussions with the Russians prior to the administration starting. Uh, he was caught. He mm-hmm. was caught lying. That's compromise. Mm-hmm. Paul Manafort. We don't even have to, like, s- summarize all the things yes. that he's done. George Papadopoulos. All those situations we know are people involved with Russia in one way or another who are compromised. Mm -hmm. What is the ultimate takeaway of all this? I I don't know. I have theories. You have theories. Everyone has theories. But we're going to get a Mueller report imminently. The beautiful thing about the Mueller report is is, is, if you take a look at at Mueller's indictments that he's issued so far. Yeah. Look at the indictment of the GRU officers. Yes. He has everyone's emails to each other, Russian to Russian. Yes. He has Bitcoin payments that are supposed to be confidential. Yeah. If you look at the at the, S, the SDNY, the Southern District of New York's indictment mm-hmm. against Natalia Veselnitskaya, mm-hmm. he has her emails and her documents and her track changes. Yes. Okay. Track changes. Exactly. He has her track changes. We're going to know everything. I don't know. He knows a thousand times more than you. He knows a thousand times more than me. And we're going to know soon. You know, you point out that these people like Papadopoulos are compromised. And I think you would agree with me that at Helsinki, at least... If not in the May 10th, 2017 meeting with Sergei's Lavrov and Kislyak, it looked at Helsinki like we had a compromised, if not entirely owned president. I know that things changed for you at Helsinki, or at least you felt more confident saying this is a code red situation. Well, Helsinki was 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 very personal for me. Yes. So so I mean, I I had this joke before Helsinki. I, I was I, I was going to tweet out. I wonder if they're going to talk about me at Helsinki. Yes. And then I thought, you know, 
that just seems so self-centered and idiotic to, to, to put that out. I'm not going to put that out there. I'm sure people would like gang up on me if I say that. And then they have their meeting, a yep. two-hour meeting in which nobody is present, no aides, nobody, mm-hmm. no note takers. Mm-hmm. And then they come out and what do they talk about? But me. Yes. They co- come and talk about me. Yeah. And the deal was that Putin was was basically saying, if you hand over Bill Browder and, and 11 Americans, mm-hmm. I'll let Mueller have access to the 12 GRU officers who you accuse of hacking the election. And Donald Trump said, great idea, great idea. And so everybody in Washington was in up in arms. And I was on every talk show saying, well, what do you think? And I said, this is disgusting. And he should immediately, you know, say it's not a good idea. And, right. And so on and so forth. And, and then three days later, the New York Times asked Sarah Huckabee Sanders, what's the president going to do? And she said, well, he hasn't decided yet. And then it was only after the Senate was about to vote. It was about to vote 98 to zero. And he knew it. That within like 45 minutes before the Senate vote, he said, uh, we've decided that even though Putin was very sincere, we've decided that this is not a good idea. So someone said this would be going too far. No rendition scheme for Bill, Bill Browder. We should say that a great decision you made was becoming not an American citizen because it would make it harder for Trump's goons I think if you were, and they could extradite you well, to Siberia, to the Gulag. I mean, I'm here. In, I'm here in New York right now, but I live in I live in London, and yeah. so so if Putin wants me, he actually went to the wrong head of state <laughs> to, to have me handed over. Theresa yeah. May was the is the person who he'd have to ask to hand me over, and um, you know, after Salisbury, I think that you know that probably wouldn't happen. Yes, exactly. So speaking of Salisbury, where the Skripal father and daughter were poisoned. How scared are you? I know I asked you this. I asked Victor Caramorza, what is it like? Your life shifted so dramatically. And to be in the center of all this, I mean, sometimes I think that Hillary Clinton is Putin's enemy, number one. But now that he feels she's sidelined, you seem to be public enemy number one for Vladimir Putin. I mean, that is the most terrifying thing I've ever heard. Like, you smile when you talk about this. Well, I'm not sitting here panicking. I don't, yeah, I, I don't, not at all. I've I, never seen you panic. I don't live in fear. And in fact, the whole purpose of their intimidation is to try to make people fearful and from their fear, regulate themselves, not do the things that they do. And then they've effectively won without even having to commit a crime. Yeah. And so that's not how I live. And and of course, I have I have all sorts of countermeasures and precautions and things that I do, which um, I have to do. And, and you know, I live a, a different life than any normal person. And Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but I'm not spending my life looking over my shoulder, feeling fear. And I've been doing this for a long time now. This yeah. has been going on. This is not, this is not just started. This has been going on for a long time. Just because he mentions my name in Helsinki doesn't mean that those sentiments haven't been there for a lot, a lot of years. You did such an evocative job of explaining how in the presence of Vladimir Putin or in the presence of the oligarchs, a person is destabilized, a person with, as you say, like a decent mother and some religious background, maybe law school in the United States or normal education, no evidence that they are going to be swayed by a crew of, you know, Ukrainian prostitutes or the promise of some maxi yacht. But all of a sudden, in the presence of Putin, it's almost like you're being bribed and blackmailed the second you get anywhere near him. What is that like? Because we've seen... And maybe this is a stretch, but we've seen descriptions by Preet Bharara, by James Comey and by others of getting in the presence even of Donald Trump, that you don't want to be there when he's locker room talk with you to sort of groom you to see if you have an evil side or you have some taste for something that could be used as kind of blackmail and then bribing you with all kinds of offers and that people come back from a single meeting 
with a Putin, with a Trump, with an oligarch, and suddenly their interests are all changed and their value systems all changed. How does that happen? Well, Putin is the expert on this. He was a KGB officer his whole life. Mm -hmm. And the KGB doesn't use sort of persuasion in the way we, you know, I can try to persuade you with a good argument and my logic makes sense. You say, I can see where you're coming from. Putin only has two ways of persuading people. One is bribery and the second is blackmail. And they, they look for where the weaknesses are. Is, yeah. it, is it money, ideology, sex? And and they analyze people and they figure out where their where their weaknesses are. Yeah. And then and they and they use bribery and blackmail sort of all together. They they start with with a little incentive and, and just across the line slightly. And then they see if someone's ready to cross the line slightly. And if they get them across the line a little bit with a bit of then they give them maybe a little bit more. And the, the person, their target is feeling pretty good about themselves or getting mm-hmm. a bit of cash, they're not doing anything wrong, et cetera. Yeah. Maybe they cross the line a little bit, but no problem. And then all of a sudden the Russians come and say, listen, we want you to do something really big. And they say, no, 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 no. You know, that's not what I signed up for. And they say, well, we have all these records of you taking money and doing all this stuff. We'll, yeah. we, we, we will expose you. And then your life will be over and your, your career will be ruined. And you might go to jail or we can actually give you some more money. You've got to do this thing we've asked you, which is a really big thing, but but you'll do it. And these people are in this terrible position and then they, they get them in, into, into a deeper. And then pretty soon they're just full on criminal partners with Vladimir Putin. And that's, yeah. how, and that's how he does it. And it's, it's, there's books written about it. It's well known. It's not even yeah. novel. I mean, it's not the, not, Vladimir Putin's not the only one who's come up with this. This right. is a KGB enterprise. That's what the Russians do. And they find people all over the world in every country. They found, they found people in Switzerland, mm-hmm. in the Swiss federal police to do this. They find people everywhere. They found they found the deputy attorney general of Cyprus um, ready to, to, to do this kind of stuff with them. And it seems like they may have found the American president. You know the mind of Putin better than almost anyone except Hillary Clinton. But what's he going to do next? Well, Putin, he's got a huge number of setbacks. His yeah. entire GRU, which is his military intelligence network, was yeah. exposed after the Skripal fiasco. His oligarchs are sanctioned, um, which is, means his own money is sanctioned. He's got terrible problems inside Russia where where the average person is there's they're running out of money he's got to spend more money on military mm-hmm. and the average person is rising up he's got Alexei Navalny he's got all these corruption issues Putin is just trying to live from day to day week to week stay in power keep his money and stay alive he's not strategic at all if he was being strategic he would understand that the damage that he's causing right now um, in terms of the his perception in the west in in America and France and and England and various other places is so bad that that there will be a reaction to him and it will be devastating and it will be so devastating. Whether Donald Trump is in power for two years or another six years, Democrat or Republican, the next person who comes in is going to come down so hard on Russia. He's not going to know what, what he's what, what and he's never seen anything like it, Vladimir Putin. And so he's just playing day by day. He's an excellent tactician, one of the worst strategists around. It's a miserable life for him because he can't relax for a second. He's got enemies everywhere, real enemies. And the oligarchs are his enemies, too. He's been t- taking 50 percent from them. I mean, as soon as right, as soon as he's out of power. Well, he'll never he'll never be out of power. That's the whole point. Uh, he can never step down. There is no Putin presidential library to retire to. <laughs> My guest has been Bill Browder. He's a financier, a Kremlin whistleblower and a global criminal justice crusader. He's also the author of Red Notice. Thank you very much again for being here, Bill. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Tell us what you think. We are not afraid of feedback. Our Twitter lines are open. I'm page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And before you exit your app or mobile browser, head over to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. It's time. Today's the day. And sign up to be a plus member. 
if you haven't already. You're going to want these perks. You'll get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free, a discount to our Trumpcast live show in L.A. on February 7th. And best of all, you'll be supporting our work. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob. John D. Domenico is, as usual, our voice of Donald Trump. You can follow him at johnnyd23 on Twitter. And I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks again for listening to Trumpcast.